All right, we are back and still searching for some good news. Uh, there's some. There's some out there. I, one thing that's always puzzled me about all these discussions about how we need to uh, go to alternative energies, alternative meaning non-fossil fuel burning industries, is that nobody on the left, and I think at this point hardly anybody at all, seems to count nuclear power as one of the solutions. Look at that and yeah, there is kind of a problem with nuclear power in that although it does offer this magic trick, of allowing you to take fissionable material and make more fissionable material out of what you start with. There's many technologies involved with nuclear power, thorium reactors, things like this. Uh, we talked many years ago with, with some people who were advocating the use of nuclear power, and we thought they made a lot of sense. Yeah, there are problems with nuclear waste. There's problems with nuclear proliferation if you go to using breeder reactors. One of the most fascinating guests we ever had on this program was a man who'd written a book about how we could fully utilize nuclear resources, because by this strange magic trick, nature allows us to make more fissionable material out of uranium than what you start with. Uranium-238 is not, uranium-35 is, that's why you have centrifuges and other methods used to separate out the uranium. It's a very tedious process, which is why in World War II, they decided to make a shortcut in the process, and try, rather than try and refine all that uranium, they would instead use plutonium. You can make a bomb out of that too. Why there was one was called Little Boy, that was the uranium bomb, it was small, and there was Fat Man, which was the plutonium bomb. A subject I'm sorry that I've gotten into mentioning, as a matter of fact. Suffice it to say, you could use nuclear power far more than we are doing. It is on the decline, and yet the modern nation of France seems to get almost all of its electricity from its 57-odd nuclear plants. The French are making it work. Of course, the dream of nuclear engineers is to find a way to harness the power of fusion, a subject we've also devoted several shows to in the past. And the good news, which I'm taking forever to ramp up to, is that apparently, apparently researchers at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California have focused 192 of their gigantic lasers onto a 5-millimeter-wide capsule of hydrogen fuel to produce a hotspot sufficient to induce those hydrogen atoms to fuse into helium and igniting a burst of more than 10 quadrillion watts of fusion power, which they did, but it only lasted 100 trillionths of a second. Reports are that the reaction appeared to be self-sustaining. I don't know what that means. I'm not sure what they mean by that. The process released only two-thirds of the energy that were put into it in the first place, but scientists think the energy out can eventually exceed the input. Let's hope. A physicist at the University of Michigan, Carolyn Carantz, who was not involved in the, in the study, told Science News, this is a truly amazing feat. It makes me very hopeful for fusion in the future. To which I would add, God, I hope so should be kept in mind that people thought they were going to harness fusion back in the 1950s. But fusion has managed to outsmart the scientists trying to harness it now for over a half century. The old comedy line, the old saw about fusion was that it was an energy source 40 years in the future and always will be. But perhaps not. And we hope not. Speaking of technology, I just stumbled upon a book that I guess I've had in my possession for some years. Or, well, it's a long story. The book is titled Who Invented What When by a man named David Elliard. Elliard is an Australian, and the copyright on this book is 2006, but the last invention that he mentioned seems to be about 1996. 
But boy, there's a lot of items in here that I, I just really like. Like inventions from 1926 related to storing food and toasting bread by Charles Streit Earl Tupper. And yes, Tupper, back in 1926, managed to take polyethylene slag, which was a cheap, black, evil-smelling byproduct of petroleum, and refine it into flexible, translucent material which was suitable for unbreakable cups and bowls. And yes, he then went on to develop an air and watertight seal similar to that on paint tins, designed for food storage containers, and the final innovation was the Tupperware party, a gathering of potential customers into a private home. Apparently Tupper did not invent this, but he certainly exploited it to the full. And I understand it is uniquely still the only way to buy Tupperware. And secondly, if you enjoy toast, and who doesn't, you should be aware of the fact that electric toasters could not have replaced traditional forks over a fire until someone solved a crucial technical problem. Current carrying wire in the toaster element needed to get hot enough for the toasting, but not become so fragile it would burn out like a light bulb. An engineer named Albert Marsh was the first to solve that with the discovery in 1905 of an alloy of nickel and chromium called nichrome. Various models of electric toaster appeared and sales rose sharply in the 1920s, following the patenting by Charles Streit of the pop-up toaster equipped with a spring-loaded timer to eject the toast when it was browned on both sides. This was an early example of the set-and-forget household appliance, but with few refinements, mostly in styling, today's toasters closely resemble Strite's 1926 Toastmaster. You know, it's very handy because, you know, occasionally I enjoy a piece of toast myself. That's no sound effect, folks. <laughs> Chris, now, my question is, why didn't they use nichrome wires and incandescent bulbs? And I presume the answer is... They may get red hot, but not hot enough to emit white light to which, by which you might be able to read. That's a guess on my Or maybe they last too long. And yes, Mr. Will, the other possibility is they lasted too damn long for guys that wanted to sell you light bulb after light bulb after light bulb. I don't know. And my goodness, we managed to get this far into this show and all the way through the last show we did without slamming Silicon Valley. I'm not sure why that's how that happened. We've got a piece here titled, Welcome to Cryptoland. It's a reprint from an article that appeared in the New York Times by journalist David Siegel. And I think this, this is worthy of some excerpts. Said Mr. Siegel, they have names that make them sound delicious, like Cookie Coin, or Headed for Outer Space, like Pluto Coin, or Space Bound and Delicious, like Astro Cake, which was described this way. Created five minutes ago. Safe. Hype coins, as they're known, sit squarely on the flashy speculative end of the cryptocurrency business. Every day, dozens of them are created around the world by developers promising fortunes to would-be investors. It usually ends poorly. The vast majority of these tokens are worthless within a couple of weeks. The developers, on the other hand, can make tens of thousands of dollars, sometimes a lot more. Despite this track record, hype coins have become the investment of choice for millions of people. Most of the men in their 30s are younger and convinced that the economy is rigged against them. To them, crypto is both a source of hope and imminent riches and fellowship. Many coins have chats on Telegram, an encrypted messaging app that can sound like faith-based support group. You may have heard that Bitcoin, the granddaddy of the crypto, is mined by power-gobbling supercomputers, a process that verges on the utterly incomprehensible. Making a hype coin, by contrast, is more like ordering a pizza online. The entire process is automated and speedy. The fixings, in this case, what to call it, how many coins to make, and so on, 
are up to you. So one day in May, I created my own cryptocurrency. I did it on a Zoom call with an excitable 36-year-old in Taiwan, Dan Ariola, who had posted a tutorial on YouTube showing how to make and promote a scam coin. Yes, that's what they're calling it, a scam coin. It has more than 240,000 reviews. The lowest cost to launch a token is $8, he said during our call. That's if you use a site for the tech savvy. For everyone else, there is Cointool. After a few minutes of tweaking and about $300 in fees, I pressed a button. Instantly, 21 million coins were minted. I christened them idiot coins. I had a website built with a how to buy section that warned against it. Step one, do not buy idiot coin. <laughs> I wrote an announcement for Crypto Moonshots, a Reddit page where newborn crypto is unveiled. Usually the coins are breathlessly flogged for their imminent moonward trajectory. I took a different tack. Definitely not going to the moon, my announcement read. Might not get an inch off the ground. Noted Siegel, the dream of instant riches has been around for as long as money. Only the source of fortune changes. Gold, tulips, mortgage-backed securities have all taken a turn as the surefire investment vehicle of choice for investors in a hurry. Now, it's cryptocurrencies. The uninitiated may have the sense that a couple dozen of them are out there. The actual number is closer to 70,000, according to a site called Token Sniffer. About 100 are created each day. Most hype coins, though, end in rug pull a maneuver which developers and their allies cash out their tokens as they peak amid a burst of carefully orchestrated advertising. The price plummets, trading ends. On the company website, there's a list of a few thousand dead coins. The most common causes of death are scam and abandoned. Frenetically, boosting a coin online is known as shilling. Anyway, skipping ahead, you might imagine that a visit to crypto land is all about shiny surfaces and precision, like running around in the inside of a Swiss watch. It's more like a bog, where all the roads are unpaved and half the signs are written by lunatics. The websites are mostly slow, buggy, and confounding. Nearly every step requires a pause to watch a YouTube tutorial. Cryptoland is swarming with scammers. Some are waiting for an errant keystroke so your money can be intercepted, never to be returned. Some make look-alike copies apps that you need to download, which makes your assets easy to grab. Some produce knockoffs of currencies you want to buy. Dozens of coins are called Bitcoin, for example. Anyway, the piece goes on to explain a bit of how these things work, how people get scammed, whatever, and closes by noting that before making my own hype coin, I needed to answer a basic question. Would doing so break the law? I was about to create something that sure sounded like a, a security, and put it up for sale for the entire planet. It seemed like the kind of enterprise that might draw unwarranted attention from the Securities and Exchange Commission, or regulators in Britain, where I live. I consulted two lawyers who had expertise in the area. The wisest course, the lawyers said, was to ensure that idiot coin was utterly hopeless and did not meet the definition of, quote, an investment contract, unquote. No problem. This coin would be a fiasco. Still, I wanted to go through the Hypecoin publicity motions, all of them facilitated by an assortment of freelance vendors and websites. First, I made it appear as though a bunch of investors had already snapped up idiot coins, a charade made easy by Cointool. The site's Batch Wallet Generate button instantly created 100 crypto wallets, each with its own 12-word security phrase. For about $70, I put 100 idiot coins in each wallet. There was no way to tell that these wallets had been made by the same person who had created the coin. Now I needed to pitch this stinker to crypto buyers. That meant hiring a TikToker to post an idiot coin exalting video. Through a site called Collabster, 
I found my dream performer, Samuel Malky, who performs under the name Malky Means King and has 5 million followers. He raps while fanning himself with stacks of fake $100 bills, wearing outrageous eyewear, a gold crown, and cartoonish fake teeth. It is a parody of opulence, confected with props and attitude. I actually live with my parents, he said, during a video call on Instagram. In all, the coin and its artificial hoopla cost about $1,000. I had the coin looked over by an auditing firm in Ukraine, Zoikyo, to make sure it wasn't hackable. Finally, at the appointed hour on July 2nd, the Crypto Moonshots announcement went up. Malky posted his talk. Coinforidiots.com went live. Nothing happened. Or rather, almost nothing. Four people, or bots, it's hard to say, bought a grand total of 73 idiot coins, yielding a small fraction of a penny in sales. It was a total bust, thankfully. Meanwhile, we note that there's headlines saying that the Bitcoin is reached an all-time high new value. And of course, it may be dipping, but my God, it could have a bright future. Maybe like the idiot coin, I don't know. I do know that The Economist is reporting that the Chinese are cracking down on the Bitcoin so-called mining. Apparently, China had accounted for something like 65% of Bitcoins earned through mining. That's according to the Cambridge Bitcoin Electricity Consumption Index. But analysts think about 90% of that mining has now ceased. Apparently China had, an, had a, uh, an excess energy capacity, something the equivalent of Switzerland's total energy production, and rather than let it go to waste, plants sold it to mining farms. And evidently uh, entrepreneurs would drive their uh, machines to somewhere to find a cheaper energy source, which the magazine notes was usually coal-fired power plants thousands of kilometers away in Xinjiang and Inner Mongolia. Mishman points out that apparently these phony baloney miners have to go where real miners are at work to make the whole thing hold together. And here's a goofball item from the miscellaneous file, which frankly we find kind of irresistible. According to the New York Post, not a publication we rely upon very often, old friends Larry David and Alan Dershowitz got into a shouting match last week on Martha's Vineyard after Larry David berated his longtime Harvard Law professor friend for working on former President Trump's impeachment team. After David brushed by Dershowitz at the Chilmark General Store, Dershowitz, 82, said, Can we still talk, Larry? Witnesses told the Post that David, 74, shot back, No, we really can't. David, known for playing an even grouchier version of himself on HBO's Curb Your Enthusiasm, said he'd seen Dershowitz with his arm around former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. I saw you. It's disgusting, David yelled. Your whole enclave. It's disgusting. Afterward, Dershowitz called David a knee-jerk radical who's guilty of contemporary McCarthyism and added, I was worried he was going to have a stroke. And what do you know? I have another item from the New York Post that's somewhat dubious. Andrew Cuomo was being roundly criticized by the notoriously right-wing publication. Writer Michael Goodwin said, Andrew Cuomo's cringeworthy farewell speech this week only demonstrates he hasn't learned a thing. The narcissistic Cuomo showed zero remorse for the pain he inflicted on at least 11 women he sexually harassed and abused, or for wrecking the careers and reputations of aides who protected and lied for him. You know, I'm still waiting to hear what it is Andrew Cuomo did that was so bad. I'm, I'm, I, he may well have done some things that are really bad. I don't know. I just haven't heard about him yet. Making a woman feel uncomfortable... I mean, if that was a crime, Mr. Miller and I would probably be in San Quentin. That's a joke, I think. For one of us.
But I don't know. I'm still smarting over the way uh, the woke crowd treated both Al Franken and uh, Garrison Keillor. I don't know. I find it really weird that conservative papers like the New York Post are jumping all over Cuomo and, you know, didn't seem to be that upset about the antics of former President Trump. As far as I know, nobody's accused uh, Andrew Cuomo of raping anybody in a dressing room. Have they? And they tried to go after President Biden for the fact that he would sometimes put his hand on someone's shoulder. Maybe they didn't like it. Maybe they felt uncomfortable. You know, maybe he made a mistake. Jesus. There's bigger things to worry about, aren't there? I mean, it's not like he paid hush money to a porn star, is it? And for our final item of today's show, we have an obituary. That of the great Rolling Stones drummer Charlie Watts. Passed away in London this week at the age of 80. He was described as the bedrock of the Rolling Stones for nearly six decades. He joined them in 1963, and he proved central to their success. Fans point to many of the, of the Stones tunes as being, uh, being shaped by the, uh, the beating on the drums of, of Charlie Watts, things like Painted Black, Tumbling Dice, and Honky Tonk Women. I'm surprised to note, as I'm sure were a lot of people, that apparently jazz was his first and lasting musical love. Watts said that the challenge of playing rock and roll was the regularity of it, saying, quote, My thing is to make it a dance sound. It should swing and bounce. The Stones had announced uh, earlier uh, last month that, uh, that Charlie Watts would not be joining them on their upcoming U.S. tour, and I do have to ask, what are the Rolling Stones doing a U.S. tour? I mean, I know, I know people turn out for them, but my, have they become the quintessential oldies band? I mean, let's face it, that. Have they had a hit since, like, the early 80s? I think so. I don't know. I did have a chance to see the Rolling Stones in their heyday. I think it was, I don't know, 1972. It was about the time of their hit, Exile on Main Street. I think Tumbling Dice comes off that album. Yeah, that was back in the Winterland Auditorium. I I, I vaguely remember uh, seeing Charlie Watts and the whole crew up there on stage. Mick Jagger, of course, uh, as as was always the case, uh, stole the show. He, he was wearing pajama bottoms that, that, that did not seem to adequately cover himself, let's say. I know Charlie Watts used to say with some amusement that, you know, he had the greatest band frontman in front of him every time he was up there on the stage, and it was, uh, it was a pleasure to be there. Looking back on it, I'm, I'm not quite sure how Mick managed to get away with not being busted on an indecent exposure rap. Because, well, those pajama bottoms or whatever he was wearing left very little to the imagination. I don't know. I thought it was pretty amusing at the time, but I'm, I'm, I'm darn sure it wouldn't have passed muster on the Ed Sullivan show. Anyway, that about wraps it up. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, who's quite a fan of Charlie Watts himself, and now has the opportunity to pick one of, among the many musical selections to use for the outro music. Have at it, sir. Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and uh, we'll we'll see you soon if we all survive. <laughs> <laughs>